Hello and welcome. My name is John August. <laughs> My name is Craig Mason. <laughs> and this is a very special Christmas episode of Script Notes, a podcast about screenwriting and things that are interesting to screenwriters. Craig, when I say a Christmas episode, what comes to mind? Like, what are the themes or the plots in a Christmas episode? There's somebody who's coming home to see their family, Mm -hmm. but I'm just going to hallmark this. Um, She's been putting her career in front of her personal life. And then there's that guy that she remembers from high school who's back, and he's raising a kid on his own because his wife died at 23. And and she's just woken up to the possibilities that maybe she doesn't want to be in the big city anymore. And she's going to live here in this small town and and get together and become a stepmom, but still work. She doesn't give up anything. Yeah. Actually, she gets everything. Yeah, well, that's a Christmas movie. That's a, that's a yeah. one-time story that happens. Really, I'm thinking about more a Christmas episode of an existing series. Oh, Christmas episode. Yeah, because, Everybody does a little secret Santa and oh, yeah. they each give each other gifts. And those gifts prompt um, memories, which then go, and, yeah. you, and you get clips. Remember back when a clip show? Clip show. It's also the opportunity for actors to sing. Uh, and like oh, the reveal that one of them actually can sing really, really well. Because yeah, they hate that. They hate that. <laughs> Never let an actor sing. They're like, oh no, don't make me. Okay. <laughs> um, but the other thing that's often a, you know, a hallmark, I want to say, of these Christmas episodes is a Christmas carol. There's some version of a Christmas carol yes. where they're visited by ghosts of, yes. of past and present, which is actually the case for us here today because what? we are visited by the ghost of producers past in the form of Megan Arau is here. Oh. Hello. Hey. Yeah. Do we, and I know we have producers present. Yeah, so Drew Marquardt is here. Hello. But is like a producer future going to show up and do that weird creepy bone hand point to my grave thing? We don't have a producer future yet, but for all we know, one of the listeners is the future script notes producer. Ooh, that's pretty Ooh. deep. That's pretty deep. Everyone, it could be you. So we're going to learn some valuable lessons today. Yay. Hopefully on this podcast, we are also going to do a bake-off. So we're going to talk about bake-offs and we're going to eat delicious cookies and we're going to discuss these delicious cookies in front of us. I cannot wait. I won't be able to focus on anything else. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little bit like like Lambert, your dog, who just keeps cheating, looking over like, you'll pet me now, right? And Megan is like, I'm talking about really? The cookies are right in front of Megan. So there's, there's, can I give any preview? Oh, please. Describe these cookies for us. There are three cookies. Mm -hmm. One appears to be like a standard good old-fashioned chocolate chip. The other one might be oatmeal raisin. Hard to tell. It's a darker brown. And then the third is a very, it's it's a brown-black kind of color. Looks like white chocolate chips in there. Maybe macadamia. Who knows? That's the one that's kind of tweaking me right now. Like, that's that's where my eyeballs keep Mm -hmm. going. It looks decadent. Like, that's a good, yeah. it's got a good mouthfeel. But my understanding is these are from different places. These are different bakeries across Los Angeles. So Drew wow. and Megan consulted about the best okay. <laughs> best cookies we could get to. So we will be discussing this bake-off as we talk about, you know, writing bake-offs and sort of the, the scourge of Hollywood. Fantastic. And are we going to do this wine tasting style where we take a bite, chew, spit it in a bucket? Yeah, absolutely. You see, you see the bucket in front of you. Yeah, that bucket is for. Oh, that's you don't, what that's for. You, yeah, you wouldn't actually eat no. a cookie. That, God, that's, that's yeah. Over that's a, my oh, dead body, yeah. you will have to scrape it out of my teeth. Megan is going to eat the plate. <laughs> uh, we're also going to talk about Netflix, who released a bunch of viewership data. I mean, when you said that, like, it's not, a, you said that like the Berlin Wall didn't just come crumbling yeah. down. It's, this is insane. It is insane. So we'll get into that. Yes. We're going to answer some listener questions. And in our bonus segment for premium members, let's talk about gifts and like the best gifts we remember getting as a child or uh, afterwards. But just talk about gifts oh, um, because that's the season. Okay. All right. Now, before we even get started here, Megan is here because we really wanted her to come. And so I texted her to say, hey, Megan, we had to postpone the live show, but would you want to come over on Sunday to record an episode with me and Craig? And Megana texted back. She wrote. And I said, oh, I would love to, but I think I'm going to prepone my flight. Any chance Saturday works? I'm sorry. Did you say prepone? I did say prepone. And that was now, exactly my response. Now we have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> so prepone, I, I asked her, like, did you just create a brand new word? Because you know what it means. Of course. I mean, I'm using logic, but and and actually... In theory, it should work, although it's a bit like gruntled. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'm so gruntled to be here. No one says that, but we only have the negative. So there's only the post and not the pre-version of honing mm-hmm. something. All right. Did you create this or? She wondered if she created it. And so, I, I, But I turned to Drew, who was right there. And so Drew did some research. Megan did not create it. Oh. It is standard in Indian English and mm-hmm. South Asian English. Uh, yeah. Uh, but it goes Things all the way back to Latin. starting to make sense. <laughs> <laughs> So what is your theory now on prepone? When I said it and you questioned it, it felt so natural to me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this 
feels like this word has always been a part of me. Yeah. And it is because my mom uses the term a lot, as does everyone in my family. And I was telling John, like, it makes sense to me that prepone would be like a South Asian English term because we are so fluid with time and mm. logistics and all of those things. That Interesting. It almost implies, though, that there's more specificity to time because you've so you're pulling something forward as opposed mm-hmm. to pushing it later. Is that what prepone means? It is what it means. But people in my family are always like, just prepone your flight or prepone this and then do that. Which means do it earlier. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's actually great because like in production, we have a push, which means, okay, we're going to, you're not going to come in tomorrow at eight. You're going to come in at nine, but we also have a pull. Mm-hmm. We're going to pull your call. But we don't have that really for standard English. No. We just have American English. We only have postpone. Prepone makes total sense. Yeah. It's more efficient. But I'm kind of fascinated why it it emerged in Southeast Asia as an English word that I don't think the British use either. Yeah, so it traces back to the 16th century. So it was used in British English, but not very commonly. It goes back to Latin preponere, which means to place in front of. And so prepare. Yeah. Prepare or you know, ponere would be to place something in oh, front yeah. of place. Pre, so, pre-place. Yeah. Mm. Huh. This is fascinating. Yeah. But if a character said that in a script, we would be like, what is that? It would would jump out. Right. So word to the wise, Megan. (laughs) (laughs) Although I feel like we probably did it right now. We did it. Yeah, we're normalizing We've normalized prepone. Prepone. And I have a feeling I'm going to get a call from my agent Mm -hmm. a year from now going, hey, can we prepone this call? And I'm going to be like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. They're all, it's a buzzword now. Yeah. It's so funny that it like rankles you or you immediately recognize it as strange because it's it, I've never feel more natural to no, I've never, heard, never it. heard it before. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So I just went to doing but it it's yeah. not one of those words that's offensive. It actually I'm actually annoyed I haven't had it. Yeah. I feel deprived. Yeah. All right. Should have been there. No. Well, uh something we also should have had this entire time was viewership data for the streaming services. So this was a, a huge point of contention in the WGA strike. Sure. And of course the SAG after it took the same uh, basic formula. But now, this last week, Netflix released just a ton of viewership data on all this stuff. So it is the hours viewed for every title, original and licensed, watched for over 50,000 hours. The premiere date for any Netflix TV series or film is listed on this chart, whether it's available globally. So in total, this report, which they released, covers more than 18,000 titles, 99% of all viewing on Netflix, yeah. and nearly 100 billion hours viewed. I, I mean, uh, this, is, this is an insane thing. I mean, I guess question number one mm-hmm is do we believe this? Well, that's that's fair. So we don't have any sort of independent way of verifying that these are the real numbers. So like, I guess my volley back would be, what would be the reason for fudging the numbers on any given title or multiple titles? Well, two potential reasons. Yeah. One, fudge upwards to look better mm-hmm. for Wall Street. Two, fudge downwards on shows where fudging upwards would cost them a lot. Yeah. Because now that the WGA made their deal and got success-based... Mm-hmm. residuals of some sort and SAG. Is their success base slightly different? It's, it's exactly the same, exactly but the same. they get paid more than we do. They, well, they, that they makes sense because yeah, they have to split it across yeah. a, a cast. So that's my question is like, okay, so the number one title on this list is The Night Agent Season 1. Yes. Now, Craig, you've seen every episode of The Night Agent. You know exactly what it is. Right. So tell me tell me about The Night Agent. Tell, sure. me, <laughs> tell me what you love about so, it so much. I mean, as you guys know, I love agency-based mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. agency-based narratives, whether it's a travel agent, a secret agent. Mm-hmm. And when I have a choice of yeah. viewing and I know, okay, well, this whole thing takes place during the day. Yeah. As opposed to this happening at night, yeah. I always go to the night. It just looks cooler. So that's what drew me to the night agent season one. Oh, I think you're getting confused though, because oh. it's not about sort of like an agent that works at night. It's actually about an agent who helps you find the right night for you. It's like a real estate agent. Like, what is the right night for me? <laughs> I see. And so it's, it's really, you know, it's that fulfillment kind Buying of Buying and selling nights. No, it's not that at all. Oh. It's a Sean Ryan show. Sean Ryan, who's a, oh, a yeah. mentor of a guy. Yeah. Um, it is his show for Netflix. It is by far the, the top title. I mean, he's destroying it. Is this a crime kind of thing or a spy it's thing? It's not. So let me give you the uh, description of it. It is... It's like I don't work in this business. <laughs> literally. <laughs> Here, so oblivious. Here's a summary that's on IMDb. Low-level FBI agent Peter Sutherland works in the basement of the White House, manning a phone that never rings until the night it does, propelling him into a conspiracy that leads all the way to the Oval Office. As they often do. As they do, often do. It has no stars to speak of. It, the two people I recognized in the cast are Hong Chow and D.B. Woodside. I mean, they're both very good. Both very good, but, there, but there's no like marquee star. Like, sure. 
That's not either of those people. It's based on a book by Matthew Quirk, Seven Writers in the Room. It seems like a very conventional show that is a giant hit. It's a giant hit. So that that's my question. Like you mentioned, no huge stars. I don't think this star thing necessarily would connect to these hours viewed, although individual actors may make deals with Netflix that say, hey, if you hit this number, you got to pay me extra. doesn't sound like maybe they have a, like you said, a big marquee, you know, A-lister Bradley Cooper kind of guy. So um, when I look at this, I just wonder like, okay, I want to believe all of this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know what to do with 812 million hours viewed exactly. I don't know what it means. One of the challenges with hours viewed is like it, you know, it's hard for a feature to hit hours viewed because like a feature is just two hours of film. It's not, you know, mm-hmm. right. you know 10 hours the way that a limited series would be. Yeah. And people, I mean, I don't know. I, I assume they keep track of people rewatching things, although I'm not sure how you even convert rewatchability into money when there is no advertising. If you rewatch something on a network, you get new ads. That's yeah. money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, Netflix will have ads. And so that will be useful for them down the road. Right. What is interesting is what we don't see on here. There's a lot of stuff on Netflix and a lot of hoopla around all sorts Mm -hmm. of things. And every time a new show comes out, as I like to say, Netflix announces it is the most watched show in the history of mankind. But Wednesday is not surprising to see here in the the, top five. With the creators that show on here to talk about it. Yep. You, very popular. People Mm -hmm. talk about it all the time. But then there are these, you know, FUBAR season one. Mm -hmm. Don't know it. What is FUBAR? It's an Arnold Schwarzenegger show. Oh, well, that actually makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's kind of cool. Uh, Ginny and George, I've heard about only in the sense that it's a giant hit on Netflix that I've never heard of. Same. Yeah. Giant hit on Netflix, and I, I don't know what it is. Beef season one, very mm-hmm. good, I would say, for that. Like, So there are shows that, um, now that we're in you know the thick of a, an, an incredibly compressed award season because of the strikes, everything is happening in January and February, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so the discussion is, okay... There are these shows that are not necessarily widely watched by audiences around the world, but they're very hot in mm-hmm. our circles. And of course, inside Hollywood, that's where all the voters come from. So then you think like, okay, well, beef, everyone talks about beef. Everyone's oh, yeah. seen beef here, but is it like a hit anywhere else? Answer, yes. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Um, so it's important to note that almost all these titles, they're showing the global hours viewed. And right. so some of these shows may not be huge hits in the U.S., but they are big hits overseas. Right. Uh, the third title listed on here is The Glory, which is a Korean show. There's actually quite a few you know, Asian shows that show up pretty high. Right. There's Spanish shows that, that show up pretty high. La Reina del Sur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is Physical 100 Season 1. That looks Korean as well. Physical 100 Season 1 has two colons in it. Yeah, nice. Physical colon 100 colon Season 1. I'm into that. Yeah. So what will be the actual impact of Netflix deciding to release this? Um, like, will it pressure the other companies to do similarly? Not necessarily. Probably, if I had to guess, I would say the opposite. Mm. That Netflix is the most widely watched streaming service. If I'm Apple, uh-huh. I would probably destroy small countries before I would agree to put out hours viewed. Mm. Um, because they are not, uh, every indication is they're not viewed anywhere near this level. Other companies may not have this hours view data the way that Netflix does. For instance, Max or mm-hmm. HBO is still linear and streaming. How do you, do you, do you get the hours viewed like they do? Cause that data doesn't come in when grandma watches it over her satellite dish. It doesn't collect the data the way it does on a streaming service. Disney plus, I think might mm-hmm. if they felt they could compete with these numbers. I think Netflix is kind of smart because they're like, you guys want to see numbers? We'll show you numbers. Now, now you. Yeah. Now you do it. I don't know if we're going to see any of these anytime soon from anyone. I guess the, the counter argument to that is you can always divide the hours viewed based on the actual uh, number of subscribers you have. And that sort of shows like that's the reason why uh, Paramount Plus, it's not going to have 812 million hours viewed. But based on the number of subscribers, it can show like what are the hits for it. Yeah, but because it's the subscribers that matter. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. You know, so Paramount's like, well, per subscriber, our subscribers watch more per subscriber than Netflix subscribers do. It doesn't matter because if you have one subscriber, you're dead, you know, <laughs> no matter how much that yeah. guy watches. I like the idea of one crazy Paramount Plus subscriber who's just 24-7. It's me. It's you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it you. Megan, tell some insights. Are there shows on here that you're aware of that we're not aware of? Like some of these shows, like The Night Agent and FUBAR, my parents were all over. Mm. So I was aware of 
the popularity of those shows. Something I was surprised about, though, looking at this is very few comedies. Yeah. Well, comedies are not global. That's mm. the problem. And that's why, you know, comedies in in motion pictures were always questionable investments and always got squeezed on budgets because it was just hard to make back anything anywhere else because it just some comedy just doesn't travel. But is there anything on here that you're surprised to see how low it is? Well, we only have two sheets of this and yeah. scrolling through this whole report, it's just endless. So. It is endless. And this is also Jan- January through July 2023. So stuff that's more recent, we wouldn't right. actually show here. I was happy to see things like the Never Have I Ever season four uh, showing up. Like It's on the second page, but it's still pretty high up there. And so it's a comedy in its final season. And you think about sort of like, oh, the nice thing about multiple season shows is like, was it that last season worth it for us to make? Right. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, yes, it was worth it to make that last and a season. a huge win for Aline with Your Place or Mine right below that. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And in the, let's call it the uh, national competition, the Olympics level competition, Korea with the gold, there is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven mm-hmm. Korean series listed here. And that's impressive. So I also listened to the media call that they did with this. And one point that they made was that Korean series have like 40 to 50 episodes. Okay. Uh, so if you if you are watching and you're engaged, that's see. a it's lot more hours. Than, yeah, because yeah. Korea is not, it's not a massively populated country. It's no. not nothing like India, for instance. Where's India on this list? That's what I want to know. Yeah, I'm not seeing a ton of localized Indian But things. is there Netflix? There's yeah. Netflix India. It's not like they break it out into a different service. There definitely is. And they have really great localized content for India. But I don't know. I, I feel like most people's viewing patterns in India, like the types of shows that they're watching, I don't know that everybody's watching Netflix stuff. Right. It's not necessarily the biggest thing there. Yeah. Like, I feel like culturally, they are still going to the movies a lot. Well, thank you, India. Somebody yeah. else to go to the movies. <laughs> All right. So we'll see in the future what happens here. I should say that the WJA formula, which became the, the SAG after formula, is that if at least 20% of the streaming platform's U.S. viewers consume a new original film or TV series within its first 90 days, that kicks off the payment. And then yep. the bell rings again in future 90-day installments. If a series, of a scripted series, shows up here in this first page or two, I think there's a very likely chance that it's going to kick off one of these residual payments. Do we happen to know what the domestic uh, viewership base for Netflix is? I don't. So how do we know that we've hit twenty percent of it? We know how many subscribers there are. That's why. Yeah, I mean. so we, we do. I don't know. You just know, we do know what we okay. do know it is. That, that's a, a public figure they, they got it. Are proud to boast about. All right, cool. We've got some follow up, Drew. Uh, yeah, in episode six twenty one, John said that one of his goals for the year was learning the international phonetic alphabet, which led to a whole discussion about words like present versus present, which Craig called homonyms. So Andrew wrote in with a follow up. Wrote homonyms are the intersection of words that sound the same and words that look the same. The term refers to both homophones and homographs, but in combination. So examples would be ring, ring, or tire, tire. And what you described as a homonym is, in fact, a better example of a homograph. So that's two words that are spelled or graphed the same, but have different pronunciations and different meanings. Present, present is a great example of a homograph. So words that look the same on the page, but sound different when spoken aloud. So homographs are, the difference between a homograph and a homonym, if I understand what he's saying, is that it's homonyms sound exactly the same when spoken. They just mean different things. Yes. Whereas exactly. homographs look the same, spelled the same, but pronounced differently. Yes. Well, that, thank you. I, I, you know what? I don't recall learning about homographs. I got to mm. be honest with you. No. That was not something we were taught. No, I think we were just told homonyms, homonyms. which is which only is supposed to be the combination of the two. Right. So, so this is a, a they've, carved off a chunk of what we were taught were homonyms mm. and reassigned them to homographs, which is a much better word. Yeah. So I agree with and that. And so homophone are things that just sound the same, but could be spelled very differently. So yes. eight and eight or um, bear, like the animal and bear, like without clothes. Right. But there's like, you know, if you have bear with me, that's an example of, of a word. That, so bear can be sort of a homonym in that, that sense too, where it's like bear the animal and bear with me are the same. Right. Yeah. But a homograph would be like resume and resume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Got it. I also have some follow-up, by, additional follow-up, I, I should mention, Please. that Melissa wanted to add. <laughs> I was not surprised there'd be additional follow-up to the last follow-up from Melissa. So, talking about, this was not about cooking. Now it's about biopic. Mm. And she said, you said, accusingly, you said that 
there was another word I used with bio that we don't say bio, mm. but she said, but you do say biography. Mm. So if you say biography, it's reasonable that somebody might think you would say biopic. And I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. That's a fair point. I still think if you say biopic, you're stupid. Mm. <laughs> I want to be on record yeah. with that. It's not as annoying as the past participle of cast being casted instead of cast. When people say casted, I'm just, yeah. I, I don't know what to do. I'm on a, I'm on a crusade. Mm. We're going to get rid of it. Casted. We, we, we have to stop people saying casted. We have to. Yeah. I, Why do they do this? Because they do. And we will never, we'll, you'll never You're not win, gonna win. You're not going to win. I'm punching against the ocean, aren't you? You are. You absolutely are. <laughs> I mean, because English, I think it's generally drifting towards just standardized ED endings for everything. And I think ESL learners will always put the ED on because that's, that's the instinct is there to do it. Mm-hmm. ESL people are going to learn the proper way because they're being taught. It's the non-ESL people. It's the native speakers of English mm-hmm. who just don't care. Yeah. And they're but, ruining our precious language. But but during Ramadan, we fasted. During the storm, we lasted through the night. The, of course. The, the candle lasted. The we, oil lasted through. Yes. 40 days and 40 nights. it turns out, unfortunately, cast doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, I putted this here. No, you did not. You yeah. put it there. Yeah. Oh, but putted this here is so cute. It's a very, I, it's a very common, it's a very common error. I put it this here. It's a very common <laughs> child error. <Yeah>. Mommy, <laughs> I, did I, I put it in the right place? <laughs> so it is cute, isn't it? Yeah, but cast it is not cute. <laughs> cast it is repulsive. Yeah. So, and put it, I mean, they'll, you'll, they'll recognize that something is wrong. And so they'll put an extra ED on it again. Just put, put it, it. I put it, <laughs> put it, in. yeah. No, oh, put it wrong. Oh, you must, I put it, 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 it. <laughs> Lambert is scratching the couch in protest against casted. Mm-hmm. Correct. We have more follow-up on coverage. Yeah, so we talked about AI script coverage. R wrote in. R says, I interned this past summer at an independent production company that has several movies on a major streamer. My main job was script coverage, but they would have me and other interns do random tasks during my time with them. One was training chat GPT to provide script coverage. I asked to switch assignments after a day because it felt like I was actively helping AI to replace me. To make matters worse, I wasn't getting paid for it. The internship was for school credit. I do want to acknowledge that maybe they weren't trying to replace script readers, but still, script coverage is a great way for people like me, fresh out of school, to gain experience and meet new people, and I'd hate to see that go away. Not that you guys necessarily need confirmation that companies are doing this, but hopefully this anecdote provides further insight into how other companies are using AI. So I have some follow-up on this. So I I was emailing back and forth with a woman who works uh, in script coverage. She, she's a union script reader. And she was talking about how in the upcoming IOTC negotiations, script coverage is handled under IOTC. Um, that is going to be a thing that they want to talk about. It's Good. making sure that professional script analysts are sort of in charge of the process of doing script coverage. And if they are, these tools are used, they need to have the ability to be the people using those tools. Some things that this, as a person, I used to do coverage. I used to, and mm-hmm. you've, a lot of us have done coverage. Right in the synopsis, is horrible. It's the, the worst part of that job. And if you could use a tool that could help you get through that and you could verify that it was correct, great. It's the analysis that I'm actually sort of most concerned about. Right. And that's the part that we need to make sure stays in the hands of actual human beings with taste. But also when you're doing script coverage, a huge part of it is you being able to tell your boss this mm-hmm. was good. Mm-hmm. And that just can't be replaced. No. Uh, well, that's what they don't know. Yeah. Because <laughs> if you think about it, they're being paid, let's say the boss is being paid a lot of money to decide what should be made, uh-huh. meaning what should we spend tens of millions of dollars on? And they are turning to somebody who is either an intern or being paid $60,000 to tell them what they should think. The system already kind of doesn't make sense in that regard. So you can see how those people, where it's at least exploitive, those people would be like, I already am cheating. Uh-huh. I'm already asking somebody else to tell me what I'm being paid to, to know. So maybe I'll just have the computer tell me what I should know. I could see dumbasses doing that. Well, yeah, Craig, I think what you're describing is it's almost like they've outsourced the job of reading stuff to yes. a, a low-paid person. So if it's a free person, it's, yes. it, it's not that different. So it's like a black box of it all. Yes. I mean, I remember when I came to Hollywood, I was shocked, honestly. Like, I thought that the whole point of being an executive was you were being paid for your taste and your analysis. And then I found out, no. You're not. You're being paid for your ability to communicate to the other creatives and to communicate up effectively and to manage your superiors. 
Sure. But it, then it's almost like show business is show business. Mm-hmm. You know, like none of it's real. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still struggling with that to this day. Some more follow up from Ward here. Ward writes, I wanted to thank Craig for emphasizing that even though we all know California will go for Biden, he's still planning to vote. What people sometimes forget is that local elections can be very, very tight, sometimes on the order of tens of votes or fewer. Even in states like California, those down-ballot choices don't always go the way that you might expect. And that one vote could really end up making a difference. So your vote really does matter. That is a fact. Facts. Facts and and evidence. We've actually had um, episodes where we had Beth Schachter was on. We had Ashley Nicole Black on just just talk through Mm -hmm. voting elections and and like local issues just to make sure we actually understood the ballot. So we agree. Fully agree. Yes. All right. On to a marquee segment here. Um, this last week, I got a call from my agents about a project that was out looking for a writer, looking for a showrunner. It's a TV thing. Okay. It's based on this giant IP that everyone's heard of, and now they want to make it into a series. Is it The Toilet? No, it's based on a, <laughs> a very famous book series that has become a movie series that uh, everyone knows and loves. Okay, I uh, see. Yes. Because yeah. we used to sort of use Slinky, Slinky yeah. and, and now I'm just down to The Toilet. The Toilet. Like, there's going to be... Like, That's actually already in development. It is? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is the awareness, like toilet awareness is through the roof. <laughs> really? Um, I, I mean, almost everybody on earth knows what toilet knows is. Knows about toilet. Yeah. Okay, but this is not toilet. This is not toilet. This, this is, quite a, this is yeah, quite a hugely, bit better. A hugely popular, successful yes. franchise that they now want to make into a series. Based on books, made movies, made now they're making series. a TV yeah, series. We, we can explain, we can figure I out what ones this think probably we know is. what it is. Although there are a couple of choices that could. I think we know what it is. It wasn't The Hunger Games. It was and it's not toilet. So what's left? I passed on this immediately because I did not want to be a part of it. But I asked them, sir, what is the process? How are they going to pick the person to be the showrunner? So this was the game plan. They're not going out to any writer exclusively. So it's, it's only they're going out to mm-hmm. a few select writers, but yeah. no one's exclusive. There will be a series of meetings going up the ladder, pitching your vision. So like about five meetings going up the ladder. Five? Five meetings. The ladder's not that, okay, I know where this is and there's not that many rungs on the ladder, so I'm very confused. Like, do you start with the receptionist? Oh, maybe so, I don't know. Um, and so then they'll get down to four or five writers who will they, they'll have write pilots. Then they'll pick the favorite of those they'll pilots. They'll pay them. Yes, they will pay them. Okay. They'll pay them to write pilots. They'll pick their favorite of these pilot scripts. Okay. And they see this as a 10-year commitment. Well, I would agree with them that it's a 10-year commitment. Yeah. That That makes sense. So- Let's talk about the pros and cons of this. Mm -hmm. Um, I think this is a doomed process because no person who actually knows how to run a show will agree to go through that process, in in my perspective. I don't think they're going to be agreeing to compete with other experienced showrunners who would go through this. Counterpoint. Please. Ego. Hmm? So one of the things that um, a lot of writers have is a belief, and I kind of feel like I (laughs) fall into this category that I I know what to do. I know the answer to this. They will see that my way is correct. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a little bit of hubris involved here, necessary hubris. How else could you even think to say, hey, I've thought a bunch of things and written them down, spend a lot of money to make people see it. Yeah. So I think that while you're not, look, the best showrunners in the business, mm-hmm. I think generally are probably already running shows. Yeah. Like the timing of having somebody roll off something that's brilliant and then rolling on to something like this is tricky. You're not going to get people like Vince Gilligan, like the best showrunner in the business, because he only does Vince Gilligan stuff, right? So there is some trickiness there. I think they will get some good people. Mm -hmm. But the thing I'm really catching on is, well, getting people to write pilots like that Mm -hmm. only to be, although, isn't that what development is? You write a pilot and then they decide if you're going to do it or not. Yeah, it it feels so different to know that like, in the classic broadcast model, your pilot was competing against all the other pilots at that network. But not pilots but, for the same, same show. Now, and, and also that feeling like, is this thing that I'm writing in my script going to end up in that other person's script? Because we're all writing the same thing yeah. based on this. That's that's what's so tough here. Okay, so in support of your concern, yeah. there is something that gets a little bit weird in the water when you know you're not competing against yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're writing, when you're being paid to write, that there's somebody else writing something, it almost starts to maybe corrupt yeah. uh, your own process. You start to worry like, well, I think what would make them choose mine over that one would be if I did this or that or avoided this or that. And you could start to get a lot of, um, as Lindsay Durant says, unsharpened pencils, mm. you know, just sort of blunted, fear-based appeal to the down the middle committee kind of vibe. Hard to say. I mean, because of the size of it, I understand. Mm-hmm. And because of the 10-year commitment, I understand. But 
I don't know. That's that is that's that's a new one on me. The president feels pretty scary. Yeah, it does. Be competing yeah. and auditioning like that because I imagine the people they're going out to. If you had a conversation about this, are very tenured, like yeah. very experienced showrunners, and to continue to have to audition like that feels. Yeah. Well, maybe that's what's going to happen is that they're going to find out just how many fish they catch with this particular trawling net, right? Because yeah. if if they're not getting the quantity and quality of writers they want to participate in this particular winnowing Hunger Games process, it's not Hunger Games, okay. then they're going to have to revise it. Yeah. So we'll see what happens here. So I'm going to keep an eye on sort of what happens with that project. 10 years to work on toilet. Yeah. It's a lot, <laughs> long time on toilet. So during the strike, I went to this event at Universal, this picketing event at Universal, where members were bringing baked goods and competing to see whose baked goods were the best. I was one of the judges for that. It was like, it was fun. It was really crowded. But Andrea Sianevi, who came up with the idea, she gave this great speech during the time about sort of what bake-offs are like and why they're a scourge on Hollywood. So mm-hmm. I thought, um, I asked her if I could sort of get her speech and we could draft off of that for a little bit okay. while we do our own bake-off competition. We have ah. uh, three delicious cookies in front of us yes. that Drew has brought in. And I thought maybe we would start with Megan, one you of already them. ate them. <laughs> There's nothing <laughs> we have, left. We have Drew, where left. did you put the cookies? <laughs> um, so Drew, why don't you pick the first cookie that we're going to taste and we'll describe it and, and sort of give it an assessment. So the first cookie we're going to taste is the OG cookie. It's the OG chocolate chip cookie on the far left there. Got it. So this is the original chocolate chip cookie. So I'm looking at this and it looks, you know, it's a classic chocolate chip cookie. It's a lot of chocolate in here. It looks like sort of chocolate chunks. It's not greasy. It's got an amazing smell. Craig, what's your first instant here? It's a little intimidating how much of a cookie sommelier you are. (laughs) Um, It's very... it's flat and there's too much chocolate in it. I can, I'm just looking at it. I just, for me, there's too much chocolate. What I do like is that there's salt on the top. Mm-hmm. It makes everything better. It's, it's uh, a chewy, it's mm-hmm. a chewy cookie. Yeah, I can yeah. tell by squeezing it. I'm just concerned about the quantity of chocolate in this thing. All right. Shall we? Let's do it. Oh, Megan, do you have any thoughts or? No, I'm excited by the salt and it has a nice crunchy layer on top of that chewy. Okay. Mm. Yeah. That's pretty much what I thought. It's nice crispy on the outside and it is chewy on the inside. It's a solid chocolate chip cookie. I agree with Craig that it's like, it's basically a chocolate delivery mechanism. Yeah. It's, it's like chocolate a, dominant. It's almost like a, like a thin cookie crust covered brownie. Mm. I mean, it's just, now I recognize that they've pulled a trick here, right? Like they smashed a bunch of chips down, then put another little bit of cookie dough, then put the cookie. So it's like almost, I don't know if I'm the only one that has that. Yeah. I'm wondering if they're maybe not chips, but actually some sort of like chunky chunks kind of situation. Ooh, yeah. yeah. Like a ganache almost. Yeah. So, confession, and people get upset with me when I say this and so many things. I don't love chocolate. Hmm. I, I don't. It's not like I know. Look at me. <laughs> I'm literally. I wish I. I wish I could have taken a picture and we could have put it in the show notes. The look of disgust on her, just utter contempt. I've never actually seen her look like that. You know what it was? It was a moment where I was like, I thought that we were very close. Yeah, and you're you're shook because it's like I don't even know who you are anymore. Exactly. It was a look of betrayal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry. And I want to assure you that I am who you know. Mm. But this is how we keep things spicy. <laughs> <laughs> by just occasionally going, oh, by the way, I have a kink. And my kink is not loving chocolate. <laughs> I don't hate it. Mm. I just don't love it. All right, uh, Drew, what's your first read on this cookie? Yeah, a lot of chocolate. My gut is that it would be better if it was warm, but I also feel like we're doing ourselves a service by not having them warm because yeah. all cookies are good when they're warm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's fair. All right, so let's talk about some bake-offs here because we, I described... By the this... way, you just assumed Megan loved it. <laughs> oh, Megan. <laughs> well, wait, am I wrong? <laughs> he knows me so well. I did love it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As a vehicle for chocolate, I loved it. And the salt did a lot of work yeah, it for it, it I will say that. Always good with cookies. I agree. All right, so... Bake-offs in general. So I described that one TV project as a bake-off, but that's really the exception where it's like you're going after these giant established showrunners. Most bake-offs are really targeting writers who are newer to the industry. And so producers are asking you to come in and pitch your take on the piece of IP that they own or open writing assignment. And they sit back and sort of pick the one that they like best. And so you're doing this tremendous amount of work for free uh, for them. And it is both really tempting and kind of natural to sort of approach because it, it's it's good practice like how to, to find a take on something, but it, you become free research and development for these projects. And oftentimes they pick none of the above. They decide like, oh, there's not a thing here to make. Sometimes the winner is no one. 
Um, it's a function in part of anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's also a function in part of just lack of trust. But having been on the other side of not writing bake-offs, but employment bake-offs, yeah. which basically interviews. Mm-hmm. So we have to interview a lot of people to come and work on our show. And yeah. sometimes I'll talk to three or four or five different, say, cinematographers. And they will bring different levels. Sometimes it's just they just talk and sometimes they put together mood boards. Everybody has a different thing. And for me, at least, I wish I could say that that process led to certainty. It doesn't. You're guessing before they show up and then you're kind of guessing after they show up because you realize what you're getting is not necessarily the work that will be done they're not shooting something for you right now in the case of cinematographers. And also you're getting their interview self. You don't, you're just hoping and you're kind of going on your gut. So it's a process designed to create certainty where certainty cannot exist and doesn't exist, which is why bake-offs, I think a little bit like pretty privilege. Mm -hmm. I think bake-offs lead to room privilege. People that are good in rooms, Mm -hmm. fun, easygoing, seem like they'd be a great hang. Those people have privilege in bake-offs. Yeah. In theory, you are developing the idea and you're coming in there and there are people responding to your idea, but they're really responding to some of your charisma, yes. your ability to sort of sell yourself as the person. They have confidence that you are the person who can deliver this thing. Yes. I mean, when we talk about Bake Offs, we really should think about like actors auditioning are really in a very similar situation too. And like, there is that scourge where actors will go in and audition and like come back in and get callbacks. But there are some rules about how many times you can call an actor back yes. without paying them. There are also now rules about how many pages they can be... Yeah. And so we, we've been dealing with that now as we go through our audition process for certain roles. Coming out of the SAG strike, we now have a limitation on the amount of pages we can send for reads. Mm-hmm. You can't just dump, you know, 12 pages on. Not that we were, mm-hmm. but I think it's five maybe total. I think something like that, which is fair. Which is fair. But by the way, same deal with actor auditions. Yeah. You're, actor auditions, at least there's times where somebody, you just go like, there it is. That's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's our person. Done. I saw Bella Ramsey's audition. I was like, we're done. Yeah. It's over. You're hoping for that. You will never get that certainty from writing big ups. No. It's not possible. No. Mm-hmm. no. Because it, when Bella Ramsey came in to do that thing, you could saw like, oh, that's that's it. Like she right. created that moment. It, it happened. Um, a writer coming in and that big off situation, that's never going to happen. No, it's not possible given what we do. And it's not really possible for, I think, any other job except for acting. Well, because such a huge part of it is the revision process. And that's not something that... Mm-hmm every writer is capable of or that you would be able to know from the first pitch that they have about that project. Well, when, you know, Craig was able to see Bella doing a version of a scene that would actually be in the thing. But if I'm going to pitch a thing, I may be pitching a vision, but like that's not the script. They're going to hire me. And then like, Mm -hmm. you know, three months later, I'm going to deliver this script. And like, who knows? You're uh, yeah. Yeah. So you're not able to show them anything like the final product, nor are you able to show them, like Megan says, how you would participate in the process of, developing that, all you can show them is, hey, does this person make my skin crawl? (laughs) Um, Do they seem defensive? Are they imaginative? Do we ping pong? Do we converse? Is there a dialogue or is this a monologue? And the bake-off process, to me, that's the problem with it. There are some incredible writers who I think if they were coming up now, wouldn't even get a shot because they just aren't, they don't have, what would you call it, charisma privilege. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, let's try our second cookie here. Uh, Drew, describe this cookie for us. This is an oatmeal raisin cookie. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking. So it's a it's a brown exterior with raisins pretty solidly throughout, it looks like. I would say it's soft on the outside. It's definitely soft on the inside. Very cinnamony. Oh, it smells good. Yeah, it does seem good. A lot of people just despise cinnamon raisin cookies for not being chocolate chip cookies. Yeah, but that's why I love them. Yeah. Oh, this is the kind of thing I love. No, Megan's so upset. <laughs> She's like, this is there's no chocolate in it. Yeah, keep looking. Um, <laughs> no, I'm enjoying it. Texturally, it's good and interesting because I feel like oatmeal raisin sometimes have too much texture and like mm. too much oatmeal, like the yeah. And this is nice and like gooey. Yeah, I'm not getting much oat here at all in terms of no. actual. I'm not. I'm not a fan of this cookie. It feels a little gummy and underbaked to me. It's a little wet. I love it. All right, I'll tell you why. Because this is my flavor profile for, mm. I love, I'm going to say the fall mm-hmm. spice kind mm-hmm. of vibe. I love raisins and cookies. Everybody else is like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> like I made a joke about it in the first season of The Last of Us. And I still, I love it anyway. And I also like 
how much um, you can taste like a molasses brown sugar forward kind of vibe in this, which makes me so much happier. I ate my whole piece. Mm-hmm. It was enjoyable. I just don't think you should call it a cookie. <laughs> what would you call it? <laughs> yeah. What would you call it? It was just like a An breakfast, a, a breakfast item, like a breakfast pastry. A oh, yeah, disc-like coffee cake. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. take like sort of like one of those Quaker oat bars and just like sort of just soften it and microwave it. Yeah, it could be. That sounds great. Sure, I'd eat that. <laughs> this is really turning into like a real Jets versus Shark situation. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're Starcross lovers, um, Drew. So texture-wise, texture-wise wet, but uh, I think. Craig hit the nail on the head with the molasses, and I like that sort of gingerbread mm-hmm. kind of yeah. yeah flavor to it. Yeah. All right. So mm-hmm. let's talk about sort of your approach as a writer in a Bake Off situation. So generally, your agent, your manager, somebody's coming to you for this, this situation. Have you been hit by these yet, Megana? Thankfully, I have not. I've so not you've had to go in and, and meet on rooms, and mm-hmm. so you're just coming off your second room, um, but you haven't had to sort of you know go out and pitch on a job. But there were back while you're still a producer, there were projects you were going out to meet on, but were you the only person they were going out to? I was going out to meet mostly on po- projects that I was pitching and developing. Okay. So luckily I have not had this. You haven't had the, the bake-off experience. Exactly. Yeah. So here's the information you kind of want to know from your reps before you would consider taking off one of these things. How many writers are in the mix? And you ask the question, they need to tell you the answer. And that's in the, the contract is they have to do that. Right. You need to figure out like how invested is the studio in this? Is it a priority for the bosses or do they even know that it exists? How many people need to say yes before you get the job? One of the things I did like about this thing that the agency came to me with is like, at least they could talk through the process. They, they'd ask the questions. They knew what the process was going to be. Right. How long has this assignment been around? Because if things have been around and floating for a long time, that's a really bad sign. They've yeah. never mm-hmm. been able to crack it. Do they actually have the rights? I've heard so many oh, horror yeah. stories. We're like, oh, we're trying to try to do this thing. Oh, we haven't gotten the rights yet, but don't worry. We'll get the rights to this eventually. Right. If you tell us how to make it something good, then we'll tell the people. And then I'm like, what do I need you for? I'll go talk to them then. Yeah. I mean, now they're just laundering, you know, your work into IP that they would control. It doesn't make any sense. But there are some uh, people in Hollywood that just are not uh, scrupulous. Funny funny that way. Shocker. Shocker. And the last red flight that Andrea has here, which I think is such a good point, is that if you hear something like, the director has a preferred writer, but we're exploring our no, options. You're dead. Mm-hmm. Run away. You're dead. You're no. dead. Nope. Yeah. Even if you get the job, you won't want to have had that job because no. you're not the person the director wanted to work with. Yeah. I've also heard experiences from friends who've gone on open writing assignment pitches and things. And it feels like an open book test, but some people have had like after hour sessions with the teachers or yes. something where it's like, some friends will know exactly what that executive wants and they just want you to repeat that back to them from yeah. a different body. And it's like, okay, so not every writer has this information. No, it's all, it's, it's, it's not a healthy or sane or um, principled process. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't really make sense to me. I mean, in the case of a massive project where a studio has invested a billion dollars and wants to make $10 billion, I understand to yeah. an extent, but the process is very formalized. Mm-hmm. So they come to you and they say, there's going to be five steps and blah, 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 blah. But these sort of, when you get the, the, what we'll call the standard bake-off, yeah. I just feel like that's, that is the first indication that nobody cares and that this is kind of junky because why are they doing it like this? Yeah. It means, it means they don't really know what they want and they probably don't have money for bigger writers. Mm-hmm. So it's it's all sketch at that point. Yeah, because the alternative would be just like go to a writer who, you know, has experience making movies and you know can deliver a script for you. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. So if you're making like, okay, I bought this sort of neo-noir mm-hmm. book. Yeah. I now have some IP. Why wouldn't I call Scott Frank first? Yeah. Of course I would. Unless I can't afford it. And now that means I don't have the vote of confidence from the studio and I'm just sort of begging and looking and, you know, and then I need to see seven people because I, I, don't, have, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Problematic. Yeah. All right. Let's take a look at our final cookie here. Oh, yeah. All right. So, Drew, tell us this. This final cookie is a dark chocolate peppermint chip. Oh. Ooh. Oh. Are you kidding? You oh. don't like mint in your... I really thought it was going to be white chocolate, which I love because I don't like chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm basically like the anti-cookie person. Right. So it's mint chocolate chip. 
I don't know if it's peppermint. Peppermint. No, it looks like actually those look like peppermint pieces. I think it's so it's like smashed up candy cane. So smashed up candy cane in a, in a cookie. I mean, let's just no. say also this thing is massive. It, it looks more like a, a rounded brownie than a cookie. I mean, it really. Yeah. It's a mound. You can smell the mint in it. It also just looks so chocolatey to me. Oh, it's foul. <laughs> oh, this is terrible. Oh, it's toothpaste. Yeah. I'm uh, eating toothpaste. It, to me, mm-hmm. Megan's like, I'll take yours. <laughs> um, it really is a brownie to me. I mean, it's gritty. If, if it one for the rounded shape, I would say this is a brownie. Megana? If I was closing my eyes, I would think that this was a brownie. Yeah. No. I'm not a fan of of, oh. of candy cane kind of things. But Drew, what are you thinking? I'm not either a, a big fan of the candy cane. It, ha- it has a similar amount of chocolate as the first cookie, mm-hmm. the, as the chocolate chip, yeah. where it's everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. I actually like mint chocolate chip ice cream. Sure. Mm-hmm. Because it's not, it's when they put mint and chocolate together, like those Andes after dinner. Mm-hmm. I'm like, gross, because I don't like chocolate that much. Mm-hmm. And now it just tastes like disgusting toothpaste. I hated it. Apologize to the bakery. I know. I'm like literally joking. <laughs> Is this a new thing? I don't remember you not liking chocolate. No, I've never, like even as a kid, mm-hmm. I was always confused why, let's say after baseball practice, the team goes to get ice cream and everyone's like, we're on chocolate. Everyone was like in pure agreement, chocolate ice cream. And I'm like, I would like vanilla, please. I love vanilla. <laughs> it's amazing. It's just never been my thing. It's not for me, dog. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now we've tasted the three cookies. Um, we can, should we vote first or should we reveal where these cookies are from? Oh, good question. Um, let's uh, vote first. Let's, vote, then, yeah. let's vote first. Um, I would say cookie number one was my choice of the three cookies. I would also say number one. Yes, which is a very classic chocolate chip. Number two. <laughs> number two, of course. I would also vote number two. <gasps> oh, my gosh, it's high. Whoa, I did, I did not, not see it. See it. Wow. See it that yeah. is gasp from the audience. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, so now... Final two contestants here, yeah. and so I guess it gets kicked up to the uh, to the boss, the studio head, to decide between mm. these, these last two uh, these last two contenders. Right, and you know they have just a, a D twenty that they're rolling. But I mean, I think you actually can pull this back to what we we're talking about with Bake Offs is that like taste is subjective, and sure so is. like you may have delivered the pitch that wins over that executive, but like their boss may not have the same taste, and then right. you're screwed. Yes. Also, I've seen. Um, I remember seeing on um, the producer's table, this is when I was very young, I was starting out, I was coming in pitching on something. Uh, so the assistant brought me into the like meeting room, the office, but he was you know, on the phone, he would be right in. And right there on this desk was a, a list mm-hmm. of names. And obviously that was one of them. Mm-hmm. And next to each thing, it said like a credit. And then there were dollar signs, <gasps> like Yelp. you know and so it was like one two three four because part of it is uh how much do you like this person because they're way more expensive than this one so if it's if cookie number one costs half as much Mm -hmm. as cookie number two cookie number one will probably get the job Mm -hmm. drew it's now time to reveal the cookies that were so So in third place in third third place, place The dark chocolate peppermint cookie is from Levain Bakery. Oh, oh uh, world right famous. Street, yeah, mm-hmm. world famous. They do have some lovely things there, mm-hmm. and I can't hang this on them. They probably have an amazing oatmeal raisin cookie actually, <laughs> that I, I would love to try. Um, I would say all the cookies I've gotten from Levain like, have that quality of like, it feels like a giant ice cream scoop was used and it never quite all the way baked down. That's just, mm-hmm. that's their way of They are kind of doorstops. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that too much baking powder? I feel like there's got to be something that's like. No, it's not, it's not, it's not risen. It's just like, it's not, it's just. It's, just it's quantity. It's yeah. quantity of dough. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, tied for first, but the oatmeal raisin is from Delicious Bakery, which was yeah. a Magna recommendation. Oh my gosh. I, I betrayed the love of my life. <laughs> Tell us about Delicious Bakery. Why was that your choice yeah. for a, a place to pick? Um, it was a place that I discovered when somebody sent you a gift, mm. like oh yeah, three or four years ago. Um, and their cookies are just divine. You yeah. could, I agree. Yeah. Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm betraying my team. Um, but they're delicious. Their chocolate chip cookies are so good, and they also have vegan and gluten free cookies, which yeah. I am not, but. They're still I, delicious. Uh, Levan also, I mm. believe, has, uh, I know for a fact, has a vegan cookie and possibly a gluten-free as well. Yeah, excellent. And so my top choice, the chocolate chip cookie is from where? It is from the very best cookie in the whole wide world bakery, which is LA Times' number one cookie in LA. All right. I'm going to challenge their name, but 
Okay. Wait, that was the name. That's the full name. I feel like a lot of cookie places have names that yeah. make me a little. Ah, I yeah. thought you were just vamping. No, I thought maybe it's for like search optimization. So like, they're, like dental, the best dent, yeah, <laughs> dentists will have a place called like a dentist near me, and that's yeah. practice name will be dentist near me. <laughs> a lot of plumbers that are a a a a plumber. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's got a, the country's best yogurt vibe for their name. It was. I'm sure fine. Yeah. I don't know how to evaluate a cookie like that. Yeah. It's just not my jam. My favorite cookie in Los Angeles is at La Provence Bakery um, over sort of Beverly Hills and in a strip mm-hmm. mall. And uh, their vegan chocolate chip cookie is incredible. Their vegan gluten-free chocolate mm. chip cookie is incredible. Mm. So better than any of these cookies here, I believe. I love vegan desserts. Yeah. Like the best brownie I ever had was a vegan brownie. And they can be really good. I don't know where you are in this, Megana, but to me... Mm-hmm. As somebody that likes to make desserts, cook, bake, etc. I support vegans. I love them. I disagree with what those two people just said. <laughs> uh, eggs eggs are, are essential. They're really, really essential. Helpful. And often cream is it's essential. But eggs and butter. Eggs and butter. Yeah, that but, is uh, what you get dessert the coconut is. usually in the vegan no. stuff. Oh, I can't right. stand that. <laughs> Let's answer a listener no, question. No, no, I need to get support. <laughs> I, I, When I have a vegan dessert that I really like, I'll say it's a surprise rather than an mm-hmm. expectation. Mm. Girl, boom. Got a fist bump there. Bones. All right. Um, let's answer a question or two. I see one from Carlos that seems good. Carlos writes, what do you consider a draft? I'm sorry if the question seems a little bit obvious, but I'm new to this sort of thing. I understand that a first draft is what comes out from beginning to end, with the story laid out, characters and all. Next, you take out a scene or add up some more story. If it's just a new paragraph, is that considered a draft or a pass? How many changes are considered to make it a new draft, and what do these many color labels mean in various drafts and revisions? Hmm. So, Craig, this week I was working on the chapter of the Script Prince book, which was about script revisions and hmm. sort of like, you know, color revisions and all that stuff. And so the idea of a draft sort of comes up here. My instinct is that a draft is anytime you are you have a script that you're handing to a different person that is you're saying is different. That it's a it's a, a change that's going out there. It's not just you've made a change on one page. It's just like this is actually a new thing I want you to read. That's a draft. I think of draft as a pre-production term. Mm-hmm. So you, this is my first draft. Okay, here are some notes. So beginning, the end. Uh-huh. Here are some notes. Here are some thoughts. Okay, I'm going to go off now and do a rewrite. This is my second draft. I'm going to do a polished. This is a polished draft. It just means these are new versions of the thing from beginning to end. But once you get into production, those now aren't drafts no, anymore. I mean, yeah. we will sometimes say yeah. blue yeah. draft, but really I like to say blue revision. Mm-hmm. It doesn't It doesn't matter. Yeah. Ultimately, in production, if you change one word on one page mm-hmm. and it's really important and it has to go out today, that page goes out. It's technically a draft, but it's not. It's just, it's pink. It's a page. Yeah. Pink pages. Pink pages out. It's so fun to sometimes, because I've been getting the updates from um, the Unstable Season 2. What is it called? The distribution? Yes. Mm -hmm. Synchronize? Yes, exactly. And I'll be like, oh, cool. Like, what did they change here? And it's like, we have changed the hat to a visor. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of that. And sometimes one small word, like, uh, they walk outside, it's raining. You know, pink page, they walk outside, it's sunny. <laughs> That's a very big change. Yeah. Uh, I should g- uh, give a little shout out to Ali Chang, mm-hmm. who is my intrepid assistant, but also our script coordinator on season two of The Last of Us. She's doing an outstanding job. Yeah, so in this chapter, we talk through revisions mostly from the feature perspective, where you and I have to kind of be the script coordinator because we were the person responsible for making sure the script mm-hmm. doesn't get messed up. But on an actual TV show, there's a whole person whose job is to make sure that those revisions go out in a way that yes. are sensible for everybody. Yeah, so there's, you know, we have a shared folder, and I'm say, okay, I believe episode 203 blue is ready to go. So she proofreads, adds in, if need be, the production days. So we do D1234 and 1234 and all that. And make sure the headers and the title page, and then sends it through Synchronize, yeah. which is... I think it's owned by Entertainment Partners that sure. also owns Final Draft. For something that is even remotely uh, associated with Final Draft, it works quite well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, is, it is not Final Draft-esque in its terrible right, question for you. Um, so in the chapter that I, I put through, we talk about sort of pages in that sense. And I don't bring up Synchronize at all just because I want to make sure the book doesn't feel like it's sort of too tied into one thing. But sure. I do mention the fact that like often it's now software. People are not on your set. How often are people looking at physically printed pages? Well, our initial feeling for season two is that we would have no printed pages until the morning when certain people would have sides 
director, showrunner, actors. A little bit of a revolt uh, by the heads mm. of departments. And so we loosened it up and allowed HODs to have printed things because they just need them to do their work. But beyond that, we really are trying to keep it digital. You know, security is a thing. I mean, once you have a show that people are really paying attention to, you do have to be careful. I know Game of Thrones went through all sorts of you know, there used to be this thing where they would print scripts on these red pages yeah. because they couldn't be Xerox. Well, no one Xeroxes anything anymore. So what's nice about uh, synchronized, so it's synchronized, but it's synchronized, is that it distributes PDFs, but they are only viewable online and watermarked and dated. You take a, you know, if you try and take a screen cap, it's going to have exactly your name and the time and all mm-hmm. that stuff, your IP, blah, 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 blah. So it's, it's, it's actually quite solid for for um, security purposes. So, but on the day, certain key people are going to have yes. sides just because you have to look like, well, what, what is this of thing? Of course. Yeah. And one of the things, so I'm, I, I always ask for my sides to be on full-size pages because I don't like the little tiny pages. I don't understand why they have to be little tiny pages. <laughs> I can't see them. So there is somebody who at the end of each day studiously gathers those things up and runs them through the shredder. Yeah. Great. Yep. Let's start One Cool Things. Okay. Uh, my One Cool Thing is a game that we played yesterday called Clue Conspiracy. And Ooh. so it's the game of Clue, but built out in sort of taking cues from Avalon and other sort of social deception, sort of teamwork, like it's cooperative, but like there's a, but there's traitors in your midst. Pandemic kind of vibe. Yeah. And uh, it's really a smartly done thing. It took a bit to sort of figure it out, but it de- does come with like a video to explainer. And Drew, you liked it. I had a great time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Avalon's a good comp. It's like, it's like Clue, but White Lotus. Oh, yeah. yeah. So nice. you're trying to prevent a murder, but you probably won't prevent the murder. And then you have to figure I like out. That. Who, I mean, Avalon, they're, it's, they're classic. I yeah, mean, they're, they're good. They're so we played it with four, which was okay. But I think five to seven to nine would yeah, probably be the, the right number there. More of a party game. It's more of a party game. Um, but nicely done. Does anyone actually die? Yeah, yeah. In real life? Oh, no, not in real oh. life, no. <laughs> uh, that'd, be, oh. that'd be nice oh. of a tip. Oh. Megan, what have you got for our one cool thing? Um, I'm going to stay on the baking theme. Mm-hmm. Um, last weekend, my friend brought this spiced persimmon cake from mm-hmm. Claire mm-hmm. Saffitz's Dessert Person book. Yeah, such a great book. Such a great book. So delicious. Persimmons. I'm, I don't have a sense of my, I can't summon the taste of a persimmon. Like, what is a persimmon like? I don't totally enjoy them, mm-hmm. but the profile that they brought to the cake was just like a little fruity, like really moist, and it was just perfect. It's 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 a milder citrus flavor, mm. to me at least. Mm-hmm. I think they're delicious, but a little goes a long way with persimmon. It's it's because, I don't know, it's like we don't generally put oranges in cakes, yeah. you know, because it's like you put fake orange mm-hmm. in cake probably, but it's, it's a very strong, whereas lemon and lime somehow yeah. work better. But persimmon is a really interesting, and spice, I think, is the key. Yeah. You know, I love my spice. I thought for a second you were going to be like, one cool thing is oatmeal raisin cookie. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been awesome. I'm also pitching this because I'm hoping that one of the two of you will. Drew, do you bake? Uh, no. Okay. Yeah. You guys are my bakers. <laughs> you so. want me to make one for you? Um. Yes, please. Okay. I have her book. So yeah. Um. Send me the recipe. I will do it. Okay. But the hack that my friend did was she used butter instead of oil, and it was just. I'm still thinking about it. I'm not a big believer in recipe hacks. Oh. I always. I feel like you should always try it once the way the author intended. Maybe mm-hmm. because I'm a writer. Because <laughs> what happens? <laughs> like I'll look on, for instance, the New York Times, and they have like some really nice recipes there. And then there's the, all the comments, and I like the comments because people can yeah. say like how what they thought, and and if everybody agrees, really, you should probably not leave it in the oven as long as they say okay. But inevitably, there's like five people who are like it was incredible. I loved it. I just replaced the eggplant with tuna, and I <laughs> instead of cheese, <laughs> I you know I use graham crackers, and people are like. Why are you here? Yeah. Have you seen the Reddit thread that's people who have made substitutions in recipes and then get really mad that it didn't work? <laughs> I yeah. mean, that is that's a, that's like, a great, that's a perfect subreddit. Oh, that that is a dream. I got to go look that up because I'm like, guys, how is it their fault? Yeah, there's literally one that's like, I substituted mayo for marshmallow fluff and oh. it did not work well. It's like, oh, who asked you to do God. that? Because they are the <laughs> same color? In a jar? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I used an old t-shirt instead of <laughs> butter <laughs> and it didn't work very well, but they're the same color. And <sighs> Okay, if you send me the recipe, I, what I will do is, and by the way, since you've had it, mm-hmm. I'll do the OG version okay. and let's see what you think. Okay. 
and and maybe because look, in general, butter is better. Mm-hmm. But every but now if and Claire then, didn't use butter, then there's well, every now cheap. and then there's a reason. Right. There really is, and and sometimes I've even you know come across recipes where they they do use strange substitutes for things like oh some people are just like look if you're going to do this you're using Crisco sorry I know it's yeah. I know it's kind of trashy but that's what works yeah. you make a pie crust use Crisco it's bad for you it's but so is pie correct yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes Craig what have you got have I talked about steaming yet no no okay you guys. <laughs> I've become obsessed with this. So, so steaming for clothes or steaming for vegetables? Steaming for clothes. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, it's better. It's so much better. Yeah. I get frustrated with wrinkly clothes, mm-hmm. but I don't mm-hmm. want to have to constantly take it across the street to be able to press it. That just seems stupid. Ironing is hard. It takes so long and I'm terrified I'm going to burn something. Mm-hmm. And it's just so long and it's, uh, setting up the ironing board, setting just like all, 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 board. all that stuff. And there's always one corner of a shirt that is topologically mm-hmm. unironable. Yeah. And then somebody, and I can't remember who, said, just get a steamer. Yeah. I'm like, what? So I watched this video of this guy doing it. I'm like, there's no way it's going to work that well. Mm. Oh, my God. It's magic. It's magic. You just, you just, you just do it. And you can watch wrinkles. Some shirts are easier than others, Mm -hmm. but even the hard ones, it's okay because you're just running this thing up and down it and it just goes, "Eh, I'm not wrinkled anymore. I do it on pants. I do it on shirts. I do it on sport coats. I I love it. Yeah. So we went to Drew's wedding in, uh, so we were staying in Boston and we had our suits and things get wrinkly. Yes. And so the hotel room didn't have an iron, but it had a little steamer in a little bag. Uh, You plugged it in, put the water in it. And off you go. And so after that point, I I immediately bought the same steamer. Now, do you have, oh, so you don't have a standing steamer. Oh, no. It actually looks like just like a hairdryer, but with water in it. John, Mm -hmm. if I may. Yeah. The standing steamer. Step your game up, dude. No more closet space and nothing like that. You can, you can shove it in a corner. It's not that big. It's like the whole thing is maybe like like the size of a football, mm-hmm. and then there's just a, a pole, pole yeah. and yeah. a hose. And it goes I'm, I'm so happy with what, with what we have. Um, I'm just saying this. Do you put the water in the bottom? Or do you yeah, put it in you the, do. Yeah. How do yeah. you get it in the bottom? And there's a little yeah, tank. Uh, okay. You lift it up, pour distil- distilled. Always use distilled yeah. water. So this one doesn't require distilled water. This requires any water you got. I'm super suspicious about this janky-ass steamer you got. <laughs> <laughs> Works delightfully well. I'm just saying, I'm in. I'm like, I'm in. I mean, Magna, do you have a steamer? I do have a steamer. I wasn't using distilled water, and so I got the LA water mm-hmm. buildup. You see what and I'm saying? And then it's just like my clothes are uh-huh. flecks of like calcium deposits yeah. on them. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. Yeah. So distilled water, good steamer. I'm just like, so I used to have this panic. So I came home yesterday from uh, Vancouver for our hiatus, our, our holiday hiatus, pack all my stuff in this big bag. I'm going to go to a, a holiday party this evening at someone's house. I would normally be like, I'm screwed. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take this out of the suitcase. It's going to be wrinkly. I'm just going to look like an idiot. I have no fear. You know what I'm doing after this? I'm going home and I'm steaming. <laughs> and it's and I so enjoy it. It's so zen. Mm. Love it. Drew, what do you got for us? I got one cool thing. Yeah, you got one All cool right. thing. Yeah, yes, I mean, do. It's a, it's, a, it's a Christmas episode, a very special Christmas episode. <laughs> is, it, is it also steaming? <laughs> it should be. Yeah. Uh, okay, my embarrassing joy this year uh, has been I, I, I got a newish car, and you get a few free months of Sirius XM. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, in the car. sure. Um, there is a Kelly Clarkson radio station oh, wow. on Sirius XM <laughs> that is anarchy. It is. it's basically like someone hacked into Kelly Clarkson's iTunes and hit shuffle and you don't know what you're going to get. And so it'll go from like 40s country to like 90s R&B. And it it is crazy, but it's incredibly joyful and insane. And uh, I love it. I'm going to be really sad when my free trial ends because... Did you you just Tinder match with Kelly Clarkson in front of us? I think she's fantastic now. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I I wasn't a huge fan, and now suddenly I'm all Kelly Clarkson. So sorry, I have some follow-up questions. So the Kelly Clarkson bit of it is it's not just her music. It's... It's her music sometimes, plus sort of like whatever Kelly's influences are or she feels like playing but how often it feels like voice here occasionally okay. but but again just sometimes enough it's like, to keep you going <laughs> just <laughs> enough to like have that kelly clarkson like it, she, she's never taking over like sometimes i'm learning all about sirius xm but like lisa loeb hosts the 90s on that yeah. mm-hmm. yeah. and like lisa loeb has 
guests and all sorts. Of, she's never that. She's not that involved. She'll just do kind of bumpers. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of like her feelings and her vibes. And it's super modern stuff. It's old stuff. And you're like, yeah, you know what? I guess that is what influenced Kelly Clarkson. You're, are you into <laughs> Are you into Broadway at all? Uh, a little bit. I, I don't keep up with Broadway, but Sirius XM on Broadway. Sirius yeah. XM on Broadway with Seth Rudetsky. That's my jam. I'll check it out. It's the best. So, Drew, you very naively say, like, as long as you have your subscription, like, you get it free for a while. Good luck getting rid of your Sirius subscription. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, will, they will. I mean, they will try to hold on to well, you. For you whatever. haven't given them a credit card or anything. Not yet. Because okay. I, I looked. I was like, what would this take to like to keep? It's twenty five bucks a month. Which, wow. insane. I'm sure they'll try and give me offers and stuff. I've already got some dollars. Yes, they will. As long as they can get your credit card in some way or another, y- you will be unsubscribed maybe 40 years after your death. Oh, no. Wow. They really, they're, they're good <laughs> I, at what they do. They are good yeah. at what they do. So yeah. don't subscribe to SiriusXM Dude. for this channel. But if you well, have Well, I, I mean, I think Seth is worth it. Myself. Right. That is our show for this week. Scriptures is produced by Drew Marquardt. It's edited by Matthew Cellelli. Our outro is a Christmas throwback by Matthew. If you have an outro, you can send us a link to ask at johnaugust.com. That is also a place where you can send some questions. You'll find the show notes for this episode and all episodes at johnaugust.com. That's also where you find the transcripts and sign up for our weekly-ish newsletter called Interesting, which has lots of links to things about writing. We have t-shirts and hoodies. They're great. You can find them at Cotton Bureau. Uh, we were on the Cotton Bureau's like a uh, Christmas list. They, uh, like, yeah, yeah, the front page. Writers. Yeah, it was nice. The front page of that. You mean the front page of the Bureau? Yeah. <laughs> you can sign up to become a premium member at scriptnotes.net where you get all the back episodes and bonus segments like the one we're about to record on gifts. The three of you are my gift. Uh, so thank you so Aww. much. Aww. Aww. 